All right. So uh, I'm really excited to have my friend Jess um, with me tonight. Um, Jess came into my life because they've been working with my dad for quite some time now. And, you know, throughout my travels, I've gone back and forth to Minneapolis um, to see my dad. And usually without fail, my dad wants to go home and go to bed. And, you know, I want to stay out and go see the town. And Jess has always been kind enough to take me out and um, in various phases of my life helped me sort of relax or unwind from wherever I was coming from or wherever I was going to. So welcome, Jess. I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself and uh, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Alex. Um, I mean, before I say anything, I have to say congratulations on putting together an amazing memoir, which uh, yeah, details that story at so many different points and so much more. Um, yeah. And then thank you. So as you know, like your dad has been one of the biggest believers in me and my, I remember meeting you. It must have been some like six or seven years after he and I had already been close and working together. Oh, okay. So it was pretty amazing to get to meet you and have in that sense, you know, instantly a second brother and someone to hang out with and spend that time with. So I always love when we get to talk. I'm glad we get to tonight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess it was around 2015. I didn't realize it was six or seven years after you had worked for him. Um, so in some ways you probably, well, you certainly knew about me, but did you feel like you knew me or is just sort of passing comments here and there? Such a good question. So let's see. So I met your dad when I was 18, right? When I started oh, wow. college. In Minneapolis. Oh, wow. Um, wow. We started working together when I was 21 or 22. And so I would say that by the time I met you, I definitely had heard a lot about you. I mean, you're a central part of your dad's life and a part of his stories. So right. you kind of existed like, you know, any loved child would. Um, <laughs> we're a god right like this is my son alex he's been all over the world he speaks all these languages he's getting a phd he's so brilliant it's like i can't talk you up the way that your dad can <laughs> years of that so yeah meeting you is like oh cool i get to meet like royalty or like yeah it's funny you know so if it was 2015 then i would have been um, at the end of my, um, I, I'm, I'm hesitating to say career because it wasn't that, you know, you know, in the book, I talk about so much how it was a mission, how it was really like a life energy compulsion to do this, you know, but I was at the end of that. So 2015 would have been, you know, sometime after I came back from Bahrain and it would have been the last time that I've been in the Middle East. You know, so what, you know, so you, you'd heard about me, you know, my dad had talked about me. What did it feel like or what was it like, you know, sitting or, you know, getting to meet me? Well, you certainly lived up to expectation. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, I'd say it was amazing. I think it, it's so much like your book and your story is amazing to get to sit. I remember we had a large dinner together with a lot of your dad's friends and family and coworkers, and to be at a table with so many 
artists and activists and writers, yourself included, um, and then be able to talk about sort of world issues from so many different vantage points all at the same time was, it was a really, really fulfilling dinner. And then I felt really lucky that night because that was the night that you and I went out after for our first time grabbing drinks yeah. together. And I think we really both, um, I think both of us can be pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, and I think we both really pressed each other. Like, who is this person? That's uh, so adjacent to my life. Uh, yeah. I, I know I had an amazing time. Yeah, you know, I think, was that the dinner where I think I got a little bit emotional at some point in the conversation? Do you remember that or no? Yeah, I do. And I think it's, it's one of the things that's so cool about reading so much more of your story right now and your travels in Iraq and Afghanistan, Bahrain and Oman, because I remember at dinner you were getting as anyone would, you know, peppered with questions about your travels and what it was like there. And this from a very extreme left table of artists, <laughs> you know, like Iraq, that's horrible. I can't believe we're over there. Everything about it is wrong and horrible. And I just remember, you know, before I know you, but just sort of seeing you like absorbing that and sort of looking up and being like, you know, that's not really the whole story, but I can't really tell that whole story. right now. <laughs> And that's, that's to me one of the reasons that this is so exciting because you did tell the whole story. Yeah, you know, one of the things, um, you know, there were a couple of principles, I guess, that I had when I wrote the book. And one of them was that I did not want to glorify war. You know, so much of what we read about now is, um, you know, this Navy, this badass Navy SEAL did this, and you know, this badass Special Forces guy dodged this many bullets and saved, you know, and that is an important moment or important aspect of what it means to go to war. Um, but there, but I didn't want to glorify that. I didn't want to spend the whole book saying, look at how many times I had to deal with these horrible things or was in these situations. I wanted to add enough what I what I did want to do, though, was to talk about the impact of war, but more broadly trauma, you know, and to get the reader to have a feeling of trauma. You know, I've had some friends who've read um, the first few chapters and they say, why is it there? Why is it in the beginning? Why, why do I need to experience this, you know? And it's intentional on my part, you know, to you know, obviously I don't give all the detail of my childhood. I don't give all the detail of the things that have happened to me in various places. Um, but I, but that sense of trauma is, is a really important part of what drove me to live the life that I did, you know? So um, I remember being at the dinner table and it was one of the, few times in public and you know and in that moment I, I think I you know sort of just excuse myself I went to the bathroom and you know when I'm in those moments you know there's just one refrain that goes through my head you know and I write about this in the book and the refrain is you're front you're fine you're fine everything's fine you know it's just like I'm trying to force myself to get back to the current present day reality you know and yeah, it, it, 
it has been a tough long journey to reacclimate, you know, and to sort of throw off all those, the experiences that I've had. Yeah. That's such, a, that's such a common refrain about trauma, right? Like you're fine, you're fine. And like pulling back to the present reality. Let me ask you, how difficult was it to write a story that in some ways is a war story. I think it's a lot of other things and we'll talk more about that too. But how difficult was it to write, let's say for a second, among other things, a war story without glorifying that and without taking that route? How hard was it to be a different path? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because normally I think about how difficult it was to write about trauma, you know, but how difficult was it to not sort of glorify war? I think for me, it was easier because, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is the sort of junior enlisted folks who really inspired me or um, any of the soldiers, the Marines that I worked with who were really focused on the mission. And so it felt, even though, you know, there's not, I don't spend a lot of time on any one person. I don't try to really, um, do a biography on anyone, but even those short moments, I feel like I'm paying homage to the unsung heroes, the people who were really at the forefront of trying to change the world, transforming the world, whether they were fully conscious of it or not, um, and committing themselves to it. And so, it, you know, in the readings that I've done, the books that I've done, and, you know, the conversations that I've had and the travels around the world, working with politicians and academics, et cetera, you know, those are the voices that really um, stuck with me. And so it felt like a privilege and an honor not to glorify the, the badass Navy SEALs, but to give that attention to people who otherwise might not get it, you know? So, it, that part of it, I don't think it was difficult because it, it resonates with my perception of myself, my mission in life, this idea of, of celebrating heroes who might otherwise go unnoticed as heroes, you know? That sounds like a certain way of creating redemption, of sort of pulling the humanity and the heroism of the everyday person and of the passing conversation back into the middle of both this war and this trauma. It makes me think too that this sort of story of glory, that's maybe the most available route to redemption of like, no, it wasn't trauma, it was hero. But I think the one that you've chosen, it's remarkable in that it includes so many people. Yeah, I think you're right. <clears throat> the, the glorification of war, as I'm gonna call it, is about redemption as well. It's like, I'm a fucking badass, look what I did. I. You know, and different people tell this story differently, whether I agree with it or not. It's like, I killed this many people. I dodged this many bullets. I, whatever, right? And, you know, some people will say, I built this many schools and roads and fixed this many communities. And, and I think you're right. It is about redemption. Um, for me, one of the things that I write about um, is about survivor's guilt, you know? And so I think, you know, everyone experiences trauma in different ways. But for me, there, you know, I write about how when I was finishing my dissertation at the University of Chicago, I was so frustrated with my faculty. I was so frustrated with the process. I was frustrated with how I was treated. 
that I just wanted to get out. I was like, I don't care about anything. I'm going to put, you know, the last period in this dissertation and then I'm going to turn it in. And the dissertation committee said, uh, well, do you want to put um, a dedication to your dissertation? I was like, no, I don't care. Get out of here. You know, leave me alone. I'm done with you people. And literally, you know, that night I couldn't sleep. And I had no idea why I was tossing and turning, you know, and I should have been sort of relieved and um, ready to move on to the next phase of my life. But I, I just, I was tossing and turning in the middle of the night. I go out into my dining room. I was living in Virginia. Um, and I sit down at my computer, sort of like really mechanically, sort of mindlessly, I sit down at my computer and I just start typing. My It's like my fingers have somehow connected to the computer and are just typing and out come all these words, you know, and, and I actually uh, print it verbatim in the, in, the, in the book because I think it's really important. But one of the things, one of the phrases that sort of just came out of me was, why not me? You know, why did, um, people that I care about not come home, you know? And I did, you know, and it is a really sobering thought. And like you said, it, it creates a different need for, it creates a different kind of need for redemption. You know, and for me, it is really to celebrate, like I said, the unsung heroes. Um, if, if I feel, as I feel more and more like I'm honoring those who, who have not come home, um, I feel like I'm, you know, marching down that road of redemption. Yeah, I noticed that you said celebrate and redemption. And I definitely want to turn this from like only trauma, which, you know, is horrific, but also fascinating. We could have a whole conversation there about how that's. So one last thing I was wondering about that trauma is how is trauma different when you travel so far as you have, not only through geography but also sort of time and class and so you speak about the trauma in your early life the trauma at that dinner table that night which is just a fancy dinner with a lot of people <laughs> class lies yeah and then the trauma you know when you're in an active war scene like what changes and doesn't change about trauma as a as you experience it as you move through life and time yeah, that's a, <laughs> I keep saying this, and it's not, a, it's not a phrase that I tend to use. I think it's overused, but it is a really good question. Um, and, and the first thing that comes to my mind is that I became an expert in dealing with trauma as a child, right? The ability to compartmentalize, like, I became an expert at it, you know? And so when I was in Iraq, my threshold was through the roof right like i could in the moment i could compartmentalize as much as i needed to or at least i thought i could <laughs> when i came home it's not you know sometimes you know those who go off to war experience trauma in a variety of ways they see threats everywhere right so you come home from war and you hear a car backfire you're hovering under your bed because you think that you're being shelled by the enemy Right? Or if you grow up as an abused child, um, if someone raises their voice at you, you lash out at them because you're trying to prevent that onslaught of violence. <clears throat> For me, 
for a very long time. And then, you know, that my defense mechanisms did break down, but for a long time, I was able to adjust to the level of threat appropriately because I had been doing it since I was a child. You know, I was constantly thinking, okay, I might get smacked upside the head. You know, like I was constantly assessing the threat level of almost at every moment that I was at home, you know, Oh, this is just going to get me yelled at a little bit. This is just going to get me smacked upside the head, you know, and, and you know, in every moment you're going down that list. Um, and so I think that, you know, for better or worse, that allowed me to compartmentalize, right. And to function in, in a variety of different environments. So being at that dinner table, you know, even though it was overwhelming, I didn't react, you know, in a way that said, I can't manage this environment in somewhat appropriate ways, not completely, but, you know. I really appreciate that, Alex. I actually relate tremendously to a lot of that, which I won't go into here now, but uh, yeah, that process of unlearning that we do later on is a long journey in of itself. The process of what? Unlearning those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> defense mechanisms and survival skills and uh, great practices that get us through and then stop serving us, which actually, so that's what I really wanted to ask is, so if I said among other things is a war story, but what I loved reading your book, and this is definitely me, it's like your book is also a love story. And certainly as you move through, but from the very, very beginning, you're talking about this trauma. And it's clear that you actually were committed to yourself. Like you believed in yourself, you saw uh, doors and futures and possibilities ahead of you and you picked them over and over. So I wanna ask the same question maybe a few different ways, but how does, and let me ask it this way first, cause I have some questions for you about identity too. It's like. How does a black boy in a traumatic environment in America, which can be traumatic for a black boy, come to believe in themselves so strongly? Yeah, you know, it is, it is a question that I still ask myself very regularly. Um, and I don't, I don't think I have a good answer. You know, one of, the, one of the biggest changes that happened in my life was, well, obviously, it's associated with when I met my dad, you know, and when I started to get to know him better. Before I knew him, I did not believe in nature, right? I did not believe that um, genetics was, I mean, obviously I knew about genetics, but I didn't believe that who I was was preconditioned or had, was materially affected by my parents or my bloodline. <clears throat> because I had spent so much time trying to live in a way that was, from what I could tell, polar opposite of my mom and my stepdad and my siblings and my family, you know, where I grew up in Norristown. And then I met my dad and the more, and I, and I write about a story in the book about, and, there, and I've only written about one of these stories, but there are a number of them where we say the exact same thing, completely out of context. You know, in the case of the, what I read about in the book, um, we ask each other about the same musician, this musician we've never talked about together before, you know, at the same time, you know, and, 
and we just look at each other and we laugh and, and it, it began to change how I think about how I've become the person that I am. And so you're asking the question around um, how, how did I come to really believe in myself, right? And yeah. part of it has to be, um, it comes from my dad, right? We are so similar and the way we see the world and talk about the world, not to mention that we look alike and you know sound alike and all of that. Um, but that has to be part of how I was able to create a different kind of life. I don't know if that's the full story though. I, I, I just don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I mean, your dad, honestly, is one of the most hopeful, optimistic, believer people that I think either you or I or most people will ever meet. So I think there's something about that that really rings true. And then I think, I think I'll ask a, that question in a way that we don't often ask it. And I'm asking you to brag here a little bit, which I think <laughs> you just wrote a book. So maybe what I'm wondering, too, is even as a young child, what are some of the things that you did believe about yourself? Because you weren't hearing it necessarily from your parents or the world, but you had some things that you're like, I know I'm this. That I think some of those are still who you are today. I mean, I think um, when I was young, the things that I knew about myself, and I think the things that I knew about myself had to do with those things that could be externally verified, you know? So I knew that I was one of the smartest kids in my class, you know, I knew that I really liked math, <laughs> which, you know, for a kid in my environment was, I mean, to say that it was strange or odd or unusual is nowhere near strong enough. You know, it's anathema. You know? Um, so, so the things were externally verifiable. Um, I don't think I believed that I was strong or I don't know that I believed I could withstand the, the trauma that I went through. I don't know if I believed that, but there were these, and it, I guess and now talking about it, you know, sort of thinking about it, it was all really academic. You know, it was all sort of school stuff um, that, that I knew about. I think even that is kind of amazing. It's like we don't always get to hear what gets people through. And it's even though they weren't uh, well-regarded things in your life all the time, you know, what you said, anathema to what was expected, but you knew you were smart. And I think that's a part of your story that goes all the way through. And I was curious if you did it on purpose or if you noticed it. But there's so many times in the first half quarter of the book where someone is talking with you and then they just confess sort of out of the blue, like, and I just want you to know that I love you. Did yeah. you include, did you know how many of that you included? Did you do that on purpose? Like, this is something about you, that you yeah. actually loved yourself and that then so many people around you kind of can't help but fall in love with someone who has that sort of self-love on the inside too. Yeah, you know, it, it was intentional. Uh, intentional in the sense that, you know, again, I've talked a lot about what I was able to include and what I was not able to include. 
and I really wanted to include um, that part of my story that throughout my life, people find me and people fall in love with me. And it, it was not something that I knew about myself in, in, when I was younger. Um, if, I had a, if I had recognized what was going on, those could have been toeholds for me as I sort of climbed my way towards my mission in life or living the best life that I thought I, living the best life that I could. Um, but I was not conscious of it in the moment. I don't think, you know, the idea of love in that way had always been elusive to me, I think. It had been something that I, you know, I talk about in the book how, you know, my mom would sing along to songs about love in the church. You hear about how much Jesus loves you and he died for your sins. Um, but it probably took me until I was in my 40s uh, to really understand the power of love, I think. I think it's really interesting, too, because so your core mission that you speak to in the book, a lot of it is about change, you know, how much can one person change for the better? And, you know, as you know, um, I'm out and I'm queer and I'm a very queer person. And I've always believed that that has made a lot of change in the world around me because I likewise, like I'm an extremely loved person and such that frequently in my life, like people who maybe weren't, you know, totally cool or comfortable with queer people and then they know me and they're like, oh, you know, I'm off that now or I'm over it. It's, I think that we can affect change. And I think that one of the primary ways that I've seen change affected in my life is through relationship or through love. It's just like you love someone and you actually will move heaven and earth for them. Yeah, you know, I, I want to come back and ask you, you know, you said, you know, that you're queer and I want to ask you what you mean by that. I also, but before that, I want to talk about um, a moment um, that has been profound for me. You know, I sort of started by talking about you've had some profound impacts on my life. Um, and I remember us going out after that dinner, you know, that we've been talking about this. So I'm going to describe for you, a, you know, a part of our interaction that has this impact on me. And I don't remember what you said. Like, I, I don't remember the exact words that you said. So I've always heard it in my meathead voice. <laughs> and it, and we were talking and you're asking me questions about my life. You know, we're, we're starting to get to know each other. And again, this is not what you said, but this is how I hear it until today in my head. You don't realize you like dudes, do you? <laughs> it sounds a lot like me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, my, my process when it comes to identifying who I am in words that other people use, I think it's very similar to how you think about identity and how you apply labels to yourself. And at, at one and the same time, what you said to me, you know, oh, you don't even realize you're in the dudes, right? Like at one and the same time, it's, it's you know, there's the, the PhD in my head who's like, wow, you know, 
labels don't mean anything, you know, homosexual, bisexual, all heterosexual, you know, these are all just made up terms. They come from history. Men made them up to create divisions in, in, in society and to identify power. So, you know, so I'm sort of like, that's ridiculous. But then there's another part of me that's like, that's a really good fucking boy. <laughs> you know, I've always, I think we think really similarly. It's like one of my big issues with identity and identity politics is that they kick us apart so much more often they bring us together right it's like why should you be one of my best friends right we have different ages we grew up different places like we have different careers today blah blah, blah. it's like but you are one of my best friends because identity is completely useless when it comes to again love or what i usually think of instead of you know identity is something that yeah it compartmentalizes and so it brings you closer but only with people in that group. And if you're in a minority group, that's bringing you closer with a minority of people, <laughs> which I don't see as a, I'm speaking for myself, but in my own life, I've been so well loved by so many people who are so many different identities. That's never been the most important thing for me. And instead I've really come to live a life that I think for me is really oriented around desire and that sort of wanting or yearning or questing or reaching or fulfillment. And I think that's sort of that moment too of like, oh man, I do really like that. Has more to do with desire and honesty than it does with identity. Yeah, I mean, it, um, I think you're, you're right. You know, we've been talking about love and especially how as a kid, I conceptualized it and experienced it. You know, and I think you're right. Um, the, the, because the way I live my life is sort of shameless, right? I'm, I, you know, however I choose to define myself, I share that with everybody. And it's like, if, if we can walk down this path together, let's go on and do it. If not, you know, have fun and we'll see you never. I don't know. <laughs> you know, and it reminds me of a story I wasn't able to <clears throat> get into the book. But, you know, for a long time, I was a volunteer fireman um, outside D.C., you know. And because of how I have lived my life, I don't um, identify, I don't use the word gay to identify myself. I have no problem talking about Jeremy being my partner, you know, or the relationship we have, the love we have for each other, et cetera. But it tends to come out sort of naturally in conversation. And so, you know, I'm a volunteer fireman and I've been doing it for at that point, I don't know, six or seven years. And I had my uh, truck lieutenant, the tower ladder, you know, um, and it was, it was about the time that I was deciding that I wanted to move to Kansas City to be with Jeremy, you know, start a new phase of my life. So I go to this, you know, big, burly firefighter, no nonsense, right? Like, if, if you don't work hard 100% of the time, he just kicks you out. It's like, I don't have any time for weak people who aren't going to do their job. And he, you know, I had been working with him for years and, you know, really felt like he mentored me and we had a, a great relationship, you know, a, a mentor and a mentee. And so I, I catch a moment when it's just me and him at the fire or in, in one of the offices at the fire station. I say, Hey, Lieutenant, um, I'm moving. Right. I was like, I met, I met a guy and I've fallen in love and I'm leaving. And I, you know, I just want to say thank you for all your help. And he looks at me, he's like, get the fuck out of here. You are bullshitting me. <laughs> you know, he starts laughing. He's like punching me in the arm. I was like, no, Lieutenant, I'm serious. You know, um, this is going on. And he goes from 
you know, laughing and joking and, you know, sort of shoving me around saying, that's fucking awesome, man. I'm really happy for you. And if anybody gives you any trouble, I will kick the shit out of them. And that was it. <laughs> you know? It's a big change. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And you, you know, you talk about moving heaven and earth and changing the world, which is, you know, the passion that I've carried inside of me for so long. Um, and I, and, and that is, is an, a really important kind of change. You know, I don't know if he knows any other gay people or not, right? Um, but in that moment, our relationship did not change, even though there are external factors which would say your relationship has to change now. You know, mm. it was months before I left, right? So we continued to ride the fire truck. He continued to give me a hard time or train me or reprimand me when I didn't, you know what I mean? Like, the, but the relationship didn't change. And to me, that's extremely powerful. Yeah, I mean, I really agree with that. And that's love. And I think that's one of the things that fails if we focus the conversation solely on just people within an identity and how we each frame it. And it has to always be this way. Because that's part of that same love story. Like, because you fell in love, someone else learned how to love you and people like you with, you know, increasing. Because I think you said, I don't know if he knows any other, you know, gay people. Yeah. But in a sense, it's like, if he's your close friend, one of these years, we'll all end up in the same bar and we're all going to have a great <laughs> there with Jeremy. Like, and that's that right there. So, I mean, you've alluded to this now, but so at the end of the book, you fall in love. Yeah. And today you're still in love? Still very much in love. Yeah. You know, so Jeremy and I um, met after I came back from Bahrain. We met online. And, you know, the, <clears throat> there's all sorts of reasons I think that people fall in love, you know, looks being a big part of it. And Jeremy's got all of them. <laughs> um, but I think you know, I mean, this is very true. He's very cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I think another part of it is that um, we had both. The phrase I use in the book is we had both lived successful lives, but still felt like um, there was more. And I, you know, I intentionally don't want to say like something was missing but that there was more, there was more opportunity to live um, our best life. And for me, um, it was really one of the, you know, one of the themes of the book is how there are moments in my life where either there is something external or internal that forces me down a path. You know, so when I came back from Bahrain and I was completely, you know, my, I was just completely done. I did not know what was wrong with me, but I was severely depressed. And I couldn't diagnose myself, but I came up with these, these three promises to myself. You know, one of them was I'm never going back to the Middle East. The second one is that I'm gonna finish my dissertation. And the third one is I'm going to settle down, right? Like that's the closest I could come to, you know, find a partner, right? Like I couldn't even um, be as specific as that, right? But those three dictates 
they just emerged somewhere from inside of me. I didn't know why I made those promises. I didn't know the benefit of them. But <clears throat> as I look back, I know that I was missing that partner in crime. <laughs> you know, that person who, you know, and, and I'm probably, and in some ways I'm hesitating because I'm still learning. You know, Jeremy and I have been together for five or so years now. Um, and I'm still learning um, what it means to to have that partner in crime, you know? So these are my big philosophical questions. So how do you know? Like, how does a person know that they're in love? You know, <clears throat> it's a, it is a question that I would have poo-pooed before I met Jeremy. <laughs> you know, it's something I would have said, oh, there are, you know, social structures that are in place to cause us to identify specific physical features, and, you know, financial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I believed all of that until I met Jeremy. You know, there were certainly moments in my life when I thought, I think I might be able to spend more and more time with this person, you know, before I met Jeremy. But when Jeremy and I met, it was almost instantaneous. Um, within a week of meeting, you know, we were online, you know, within a week, we were saying, I love you. There was just an emotion, a connection. And I think another part of it is that we were older. And being older um, eliminated a lot of the noise. You know, we had a sense of what we wanted out of life. You know, there are a lot of things that I would not be able to put up with or deal with, you know, in a partner. And even though I didn't know it, there were a lot of things I wanted. <clears throat> and somehow I knew that when I met Jeremy. So I did not answer your philosophical question. No, I think in a lot of ways you did. And for... Queer people, there's such a common story of like, oh, I always knew where I came out when I was a teenager and now younger all the time or like in my early 20s and like this sort of like out and clubbing and that's, and this is, you know, I'm not too far away from this time in life and that's not too far away from my experience. So I think I'm wondering like what's different about yeah, the experience you had, like, are there drawbacks? Are there things that you're like, oh, I missed out on this, or, oh, I'm inexperienced here. And what wouldn't people who came out when they were plus or minus 16, 17, 20, know about what's out there in the world and a life like yours? Yeah, you know, that's another... So one of the reasons I wrote the book the way that I did is because the way that I came, there were two phases, I would say, in how I came out. The first phase, which I write about, when I was in graduate school, I realized that one of the reasons I was having so much trouble sort of getting my, my internal life into high gear is because I was trying to live up to labels that other people put on me, you know? Black men act this way, they eat this way, they like this kind of food, they listen to this kind of music, et cetera, et cetera. And, and like you said, in some cases that fits and it fit, 
And in, in a, enough cases, it did not fit. And the juxtaposition between what fit and what did not fit meant that people either could not engage me as who I am, or, or they, loved, they fell in love with me, if I can say it that way, right? And so there came a point when I said, um, I reject these labels. And, it, you know, it's not like I, I wouldn't say, so it was a coming out in the sense that I told, I would tell people who were close to me, you know, it wasn't something that I really changed a lot of my behavior or um, anything like that. But, you know, people who are close to me, it was like, I don't believe in race. I don't believe in um, culturally identified gender. You know, I don't believe that men have to dress a certain way and women have to dress a different certain way. You know, and, and I started to, in my way, sort of come out like in that way. So it did not mean, however, like I said, that I started dressing differently or sleeping with different kinds of people or um, just identify with my skin color and, and with a different kind of color, right? And so that would have been one phase and it lasted for, uh, I don't know, over a decade. <laughs> you know, and everyone who was important in my life knew that I didn't subscribe to those labels. But like I said, it um, the impact was um, probably minimal. And then the second phase of me coming out was when I met Jeremy. And when I started to tell people about Jeremy, when I began to realize that he was um, really important to me, um, I, I told them. And so I didn't say something. And this makes my experience very different, right? I didn't say, um, I'm not straight, I don't identify, I'm gay or, you know, I didn't use terms that lots of people use to come out of the closet, identify themselves, begin to start living their, the best form of who they are. I said, I've met someone and his name is Jeremy. And I recognize that that is just a significantly different experience. You know, the only reason I, I was able to do that is, I shouldn't say the only reason, one of the reasons that I've been able to do that is because there have been so many people who come out and stood up for LGBTQIA rights, you know, and um, it's important to me that I, again, you know, we talk about sort of honoring unsung heroes, but that I honor the freedom that I have to, to express it in that way, which lots of people don't have, you know? To me, it's always also sounded like we were talking about before, like that to say like, I've met someone and his name is Jeremy or I'm in love and his name is Jeremy. It's also the story of a writer and it's also the story of someone who, yeah, has really loved themselves and been demanding about telling their own story the whole way through. And in that sense of, you know, like a child from a traumatized environment sort of pushing back and being like, no, like, I'm smart. I'm going to say this is my whole way through. Like, it's also the story of someone who above and beyond anything else is driven and going to define their own reality. And it's, it's important yeah, you get to do that. And that we all get to do that because other people have made enough space for it to make sense when we do. 
and it's one of the ways to tell that story that's valid as well. Yeah, it's been, um, you know, we, Jeremy and I have been, I don't know what the right word is. I was going to say lucky, um, but we've just had such a tremendous experience. You know, I, as you know, sort of live and operate in what would frequently be described as like hyper-masculine environments, you know, my closest friends, you know, if they're not firefighters, they're rugby players, you know, if they're not rugby players and they're probably police officers or, you know, badass Marines or SEALs. Um, and you, one might think that my reception has been terrible, right? <laughs> like the people that I've spent my life with would be discouraged or drawn away from me because of the many ways that I have either chosen or chosen not to identify, but it's been the complete opposite. You know, we've, Jeremy and I have just met with person after person after person who's sort of like, well, one of my favorite stories is, you know, when I first moved out to Missouri, Jeremy and I visited every one of the Missouri state parks. And when we were doing it, there were 88 of them. And it's Missouri, right? <laughs> like, so I moved to Missouri from DC and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. You know, they have a part of the state called the boot heel and you're like, what the, f what is the boot heel, you know? And so, and, and, you know, there are parts of Missouri that are very rural, you know, and we were in and out of all kinds of mom and pop diners, little bars in the middle of nowhere, driving through dilapidated housing communities, et cetera. And one of my favorite stories is one time uh, we were down at Lake of the Ozarks, one of the, you know, the Ozarks, the TV show, you know, so that part of the world. And we, we find this little bar and we're sitting there, we're just trying to have a, a drink or something. And, and, and like you mentioned, Jess, we don't, shy away we live our lives like we live our best lives and you know we we care about other people and we care about each other and and we just live you know and like i said we're i mean there are lots of people who don't have that privilege right um but we've been fortunate in that way and so we're sitting in this bar and we meet this couple um and we wind up playing you know pool with them and shuffleboard and drinking beers and and like halfway through the night, we're sitting around talking and um, it was a husband and a wife and the wife looks at us and she says, you know, if you guys are ever back here, you should bring your girlfriends. Um, it's a great place to have dinner. They have a restaurant upstairs. <laughs> and Jeremy and I look at each other and, I, and we're like, we're together. <laughs> you know? And her husband looks at her and she's like, he's like, yeah, they're obviously together, <laughs> you know. And, and there was probably a, you know, momentary hiccup in the conversation, sort of on her face. And then within a moment, she's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, fine. You know, and we went back to interacting with each other, being human beings, building that, that really special kind of relationship you can only build, like, in a bar or on an airplane or in a train with someone who you spend time with as if you know each other, but you know you're never going to see them again such an important untold story like you started with like these hyper masculine spaces right i'm not speaking in general but at least sometimes you know firehouses the military rugby teams there's actually a lot of love there 
And we don't actually talk about men and manly men and hypermasculine spaces as being loving, but they really truly are. And it's sort of missing from the story. And it also makes me think you were like, you know, I get to live my life freely in part because of others. But I have to say too, so I certainly move freely through the world. It's a decision I made. But as, you know, a queer person who looks feminine, I've had a lot of feminine partners and I'm reasonably small who are like, oh, I'd be afraid to hold hands or I'd be afraid because we might experience violence. And I think that you have to credit your and Jeremy's living your lives freely. That also makes space then for the rest of us who are not maybe big burly men who two of us together are maybe unlike less likely to get messed with. I think that's true. And the more normal and free you are, the more prepared someone is to be like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. I see that all the time. And I think that's a big statement. That's one of the reasons that I make that statement too. Yeah, it is something that is really important to me. You know, you, you've asked a, a couple of good questions here um, that have got me thinking. And one of them um, was why am I, how did I wind up being the way I am based on how I grew up, right? But, and, and part of my response was around the importance of, you know, honoring others, right? And singing the song of those who might go unnoticed. And this is something that Jeremy and I talk about regularly, you know, and, you know, he may not be happy that I'm saying this, but, you know, when I first moved to Kansas City, uh, we lived in Westport, you know, one of the more happening parts of town. Um, and I wanted to hold hands. I'm like, we're in love, you know, and we're building this relationship and people who are in love and building a relationship, they hold hands. Right. Um, and it was a feeling of being close to him, you know, and it was something that he was uncomfortable with, you know, and, and it's something that we've talked about a lot. And, you know, one of the things that I say over and over again is that, and, and it's exactly what you said is, we are, and, and I don't know the right word, and I'm sure someone will figure out a better word than fortunate, but we are fortunate and we've worked hard to create space where we can move as we truly are, but not everybody has that privilege. And by us being visible, it creates space for others. I want to go back to what you said before that about love in these hyper-masculine environments, you know, and again, it's probably something I'm, yeah, it's, it's something I've known throughout my life. And I use the example of the firehouse, you know, it's like, if you work hard, then you are accepted. And to me, rugby is really the <clears throat> ultimate example of that, you know, and one of the <clears throat> things that I love about rugby is that it takes about five minutes of being on the pitch before you know whether someone, whether you can rely on someone, whether you can trust them, whether they're your kind of people, right? Either, you know, there's gonna be some big burly dude running at them, wanting to kill them, and they're gonna meet that challenge head on and deal with whatever comes after that or they're gonna run away, or they're gonna fake it, or they're not gonna come back the next practice, right? And it creates the kind of bond that very few environments can create. And 
it, it, in, in a lot of ways, it boils down to love. It boils down to the ability to really rely on someone. But there's another part of this that it's not just that you're able to rely on someone. It's that you're able to reach for the dreams that you have. You know, there's a sense of like being loved. There's all sorts of benefits of, of being loved. But one of them is that you throw off the weight of the world and you start to be able to reach higher. You know what I mean? And, and it may not be conscious, right? But I think about, there's so many examples. Uh, and I'll just give one example. Um, when I was doing my PhD exams, it's a long, grueling test. It's over like five or six days. And it's really difficult. And all my rugby brothers knew that I was taking these exams. You know, and, I, and for these exams, you know, there's four hours where I'm translating Arabic. And it's a closed book test. I can't use any of my books. And I'm, I'm trying to, you know, you have to cite the Quran and you've got to cite these books word for word, verbatim, or translate or something. And it's just for four hours, not my pen. You know, you don't have time to stop and think. You don't have time to correct, edit, or anything. You're just writing, writing, writing. But they expect you to footnote, right? <laughs> they expect you to say from this book and this chapter, probably not the page, but, you know, be very precise about your argument. And every day at the end of that four hours, I would get a phone call and be like, are you done yet? Be like, yeah, I'm out front. Let's go. <laughs> and one or another person would pick me up and we would go directly to the bar and you know, in those moments, you know, I'm, I'm sure no one's ever saying, you know, I love you, man. I just want to be here for you. I just want to help you or anything like that. But that kind of love freed me from fear of failure or it, it, it helped me achieve my greatest dreams. And so I think you're absolutely right. There is a sense of love that, that builds and is maintained in these in these kinds of environments that that maintain me. I mean, I say unabashedly, regularly, you know, things like rugby and firefighting saved my life. Without it, I don't know how I would have had the support network. Um, to, like I said, to continue reaching for my dreams. Yeah, I know. I asked a lot about love and being in love and falling in love, and that's obviously just because I'm a romantic. But <laughs> I have to say, too, that that same extension of, like, faith and hope and trust in another that you talk about in your relationship or on rugby, it also shows up in, yeah, every relationship you talk about in your book, too, and all of your travels and everywhere you go. It's like you, people extended themselves to you, people who had never seen someone like you and didn't have any confidence in your ability to really speak Arabic with them. We're like, okay, let me show you this because you also extended yourself. You're like, I will come all the way here and I will make an effort. And then I will make a better effort with my, you know, increased learning. And I think that it's a really important thing to know that the same kind of meeting someone that happens in your romantic relationship and life that you arrived at, it's a practice that you had built all the way through too. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> I had been working at relationships my whole life. And I think in some ways I knew it, in some ways I didn't, you know, but it makes me think about how 
one of the biggest driving forces of this project is recognizing how many people how many people's paths I've intersected through my life that find you know one piece or bit of my story that inspires them to keep moving and the thought that I can reach that outside of people who know me right now the thought that there are kids or anyone struggling with identity or trauma who might read my story and find something that inspires them to reach even higher than they ever thought they could um to me that's uh that's compelling you know it's what causes me to you know spend all the time and effort that i do on this project um and you know i think another thing that you're drawing out is how there's there's some consistency in how I've thought about myself and how other people have thought about me. Obviously there's a lot of change, but there's some consistency in the way that I, um, cre the way that I've been part of creating relationships and then maintaining them for the long haul, you know? Yeah. You said too, that if it connects with anyone who's struggling with identity or trauma, but I got to say, or with a crush or really wanting to travel <laughs> or take a risk or, reach for a job that might be a little bit out of reach, but see what happens is there's a, there's a drive there that I think a lot of people connect to from a lot of different angles. Yeah. It's funny. I was uh, talking to another friend of mine who, you know, said that even people who are just, you know, trying to get through their dissertation, right? Like just trying to make it to get there. And I think I, I focus so much on, on certain parts of my story that I, I lose sight of. Um, of the impact it can have sort of more broadly. But you're right. I mean, um, <clears throat> I don't, it, it is also, I mean, it is a lots of things and it is also a love story. I, I like that you really drew that out. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, this has been a, a great conversation. You know, you really made me think about a couple of things and probably you know, one of the most important is the way that this concept of love has really had an influence on me over my life and how I've sort of been practicing it for a long time. I think that's, um, it's something that I'll keep thinking about, you know, and, and, and the way that I can continue to do that, you know, in my relationship with Jeremy and my relationship with others, um, I feel really fortunate to know you and I'm really glad we had this conversation. I hope you had as much fun as I did. I had a fantastic time. Yeah. Thank you so much for trusting me. Thank you so much for writing this amazing, amazing story. I really have not been able to put it down and yeah. Love you very much. This has been love amazing. Love you too. Love you too. Thanks a lot.